Amen. Please be seated if you would. Good morning, guys. It's good to see you. It is so good to start our week in worship. If you would, go ahead and grab your Bible. Find a Bible near you. Take out your phone. Open the Bible. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, the very first book in the Bible, the beginning of the Bible. Open to the very front. That's where we're going to be. As we continue to explore this series, looking at the attributes of God, who God is, and what it is that sets him apart. We're spending this season studying the attributes of God, who he is, and what sets him apart, so that we can grow in our affection for God, and we can learn to trust God. And here's what I mean, like, when you first came to meet God, maybe you got really excited and you loved him and you appreciated him, but it takes time for us to grow in our affection for and our trust in God. It's not so different. I was trying to think about how to quantify it, how to explain it for you. I was thinking about back when I first met my now wife, my wife, Carissa, I met her in college and I didn't know who she was. I kind of saw her across the campus and I just knew from the start that there was something special about that girl. And I wanted to get to know her. And so I talked to her and I, uh, I took her out on a date and then another date and really enjoyed spending time with her. And I knew that it was special, but I didn't really know her. I was happy to spend time with her. But as I spent time with her, I got to know her. I began to build trust. And over time, I built trust and we started dating and we built more trust and we got married. And even over these first 10 years of marriage, we've built more trust. And now I trust her completely because I know her. I trust her with my kids. I trust her with my life. I trust her with helping serve our church and lead our church. But building trust takes time. And I'm convinced that we cannot and we will not trust a God that we do not know. And so we're going to spend this fall season studying the attributes of God, seeing who God is and what is it that sets him apart so that we can grow in our affection of God and increase in our trust in God. And here in the first chapter of Genesis, we've seen already that God is infinite, that God is incomprehensible, that he is too majestic for us to fully wrap our mind around, and yet he makes himself known. We've seen that God is good and that everything that comes from God is good. And today we're going to see that God is eternal. God is eternal. In Genesis chapter 1, he's always been and he always will be. Genesis starts this way. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's as far as we're going to go in Genesis today. I think this will be our last week in Genesis chapter 1, but there's just so much packed into these first few verses, even these first few words. It tells, about, tells us about who God is. When it, God says, introduces himself in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, he just simply says, in the beginning, God. The first words tell us that God is infinite, that he is incomprehensible, and that he is eternal. That he is the one who created everything, everything we see and everything we can't see, everything we know and everything we're still learning about. We recognize that before any of it was, there was God. Because God is eternal, he's always been, and he'll always be. So like, what does that mean? This is one of those areas where God is incomprehensible. We have to kind of dig down and see, well, we can't fully wrap our minds around it. So what does it mean for us? It means this. It means that God is unbound by time and he exists outside of time because he created even 
time. That makes more sense, right? That God is unbound by time. He exists outside of time because he created time. Think about it. He says, in the beginning, before there was anything, before there was space, before there was matter, God created everything. Everything we see, everything we, we, we can't see, everything that we're learning about. And he even created time that bound everything from that point in the beginning. And for the rest of creation, all of creation would be bound by time. If we were to read the rest of the story, we spent some time looking through Genesis chapter 1 last week, we'd see the same theme repeated over and over. God created light, and it was good, and so there was morning, and there was evening the first day. And then we'd see God created the sky, and there, it was good, and there was morning, and there was evening the second day. God created dry land, and, and the separated the seas, and plants, and trees, and seed-bearing, and fruit. And there was morning, and there was evening the third day. And God created the sun, the moon, the stars, and so on, and so on, and so on. There was morning, there was evening, and there was morning. The day. And so from that point in creation, for all of creation, all we have known as his creation is being bound by time. We are defined by, influenced, and even shaped by our brief moment in history. It's all we know. And I know there's some of us that think like, man, we're not, we're not those people that are shaped by a single moment in history, that we are trendy and we can keep up with the trends, right? Like if you think that, and you've been married for more than 10 years, and you look back at your wedding photos, you will see that well, the, the photos that you paid a fortune to document that big day just document the fact that you are defined by that moment in time because nothing we had at our wedding is still in style, right? And like if you're, you're like getting married and you think, no, my wedding's going to be different. Just wait 10 years. You'll see. Like it's going to be out of style. And it's not just like wedding clothes. That's just like an easy one because it's time stamp. It's like everyday clothes. Last week, Carissa and I went to the store for the first time in a long time. And as she is shopping, I did my quick browse through the men's section. And I realized that like nothing I was wearing was on display in the store. I was like, man, what's going on here? Then I asked Carissa. She said, Adam, that's been out of style for some time. Though I can't afford to keep up with the time, and so I'm just going to quit trying. And official dad mode sets in, right? Like, this is the moment. This will be the outfit from now until the day they put me in the ground. But even more, like as scientists and social scientists try to figure out the moments and times that define us, they segment us into these different generations. And they'll say there's like the the boomer generation, and then there's Gen X, and then there's millennials, and then there's Gen Z, and Gen Alpha, and Gen LMNOP, and whatever comes after that. And they try to quantify what it is that defines a generation. And I've grown up hearing about this kind of stuff, and I always just thought it was kind of silly. Like, how can you quantify an entire generation just by, like, defining a few characteristics? And I, I was like, I don't know if I really believe in that stuff until not so long ago, I was spending some time with one of our college kids, and then I realized they're a different generation because I called them college kids. Like, I used to be one of those kids. Now I look down like, man, they're so young. But here's the thing. I couldn't understand anything they were saying. Like, they told me they were speaking English, but I swear it was a different language. And she's not here today, and I have no idea why. But on the way out of church a few weeks ago, my friend Annie, who's a college senior, she said, Adam, she said, that sermon was fire. I'm like, I'm not sure if I understand that. She said, you understood the assignment. I was like, I don't know. I don't know about that. And, um, and like the college kids are thinking, oh, that's sounding sus. But it's facts, right? Like if you know, you know. 
I literally had to get a spreadsheet. Like, I realized, like, I'm in that age where I asked Carissa, I said, hey, you work with all these young kids. Can you get, like, a spreadsheet of, like, how their language translates to our language so I can understand the kids we're trying to tell about Jesus and, like, how I can use their language? She's like, rolled her eyes, yeah, I'll get on it. Uh, but nonetheless, like, that's a silly example, but it shows us, like, we are defined by the, our moment in time. Like, you have the way you talk, and we have the way we talk, and they have the way they talk. And it's not that we're speaking a different language. It's just like we're defined by our moment in time. Here's what we recognize about God, that God is not defined by a moment in time. He's not bound by time because he created time, and he exists outside of time. And here's what blows my mind when you think about that. God can see every moment in time with equal vividness. Like, I can't remember what I had for lunch two days ago, and I have no idea what I'm having for lunch today, but God can see a thousand years ago as clearly as he can see today. God never has to stop and think about what happened in the past. He sees it all from the day of creation to the day that Jesus comes back and every moment in between, he can see with equal vividness that God exists outside of time. But here's something else we understand. If God is eternal, that he chooses to work in time, and God is always on time. That God is never rushed by a deadline. He never has to catch up, and he's never running late because he always does things at the perfect time. And so he continues to be set apart from us because if you're anything like me, you find yourself rushing from one deadline to the next every single day. Like, I set my alarm so I can wake up on time in the morning, so I can get my daughter to school on time, so I can start my workday on time, so I can make it from one meeting to the next on time, so I can get back to school to pick up my daughter on time, so I can get her home on time, so I can get back to work, so we can have dinner on time, right? And over and over again, so every Sunday I can preach this sermon on time. And then we start the week over again the next week. And it just feels like I run from one rush deadline to the next. And I learn so much that I need more time. I need to be a better steward of my time. But God is set apart from us because he is always on time. He's never late and his timing is perfect because he sets the time. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, would say this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. He would say, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. That as Solomon examined the world and watched the way God led and interacted with his world, his creation, he says, God has set a time for everything. And it's not going to be on the screen, but he goes on to say this. He says, there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck what has been planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear down and a time to sow, a time to keep silent, a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. That everything has a time ordained by a God who exists above time. We know that there's a time for everything, but the truth is from our vantage point, doesn't it often feel like God is running late? Like if we were truthful, it feels like, man, I know there's a time ascribed for everything, but it seems like God is never on time. There's a time to heal. And from our perspective, that time is the moment we get sick. 
There's a time to fall in love. And from our perspective, it's whenever we want. There's a time to get married whenever we choose. There's a time to have children whenever we choose. There's a time to retire. And that time was yesterday, right? There's a time to die. And it's only after we've lived a full and perfect life from our perspective. But God is not bound by our time because God is eternal. And so Solomon would go on to say in Ecclesiastes 3, 11, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its what? Time, in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. God is working all things together for good, and everything is going to be beautiful in its time, not in our time. It's another area that I struggle with when I think about, because sometimes that time, is more than one lifetime. Like, I want everything wrapped up, put back together, and resolved by end of day today. Like, I want to start tomorrow new, but God doesn't work on that time. He's not bound by our time. God's not bound by end of day or end of week or end of month or end of quarter or end of year or even end of lifetime. Because God is an eternal God working everything together for an eternal good. And I think they might have had a better grasp on this in the days of old. I don't know if it was easier for them to trust God more, or they had more faith, or maybe it's because they didn't have internet or access to any kind of instant gratification. But I was reading in my prayer time this week in Genesis chapter 15, and it's the story of God calling Abram, who would become Abraham. And God is interjecting himself into this story to redeem the world. And he's picking Abraham as the person that Jesus, that would establish the family that Jesus would come to. The story is a long story. But anyway, God makes this profound promise to Abram at the time. He says, you're going to have a son, and your son is going to have a son, and you're going to have an offspring, and your people as numerous as the dust, the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. And then after that good news, he says this to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. He says, then the Lord said... Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Like, I have questions about that. Like, I would have questions if God said to me I was going to be afflicted for four minutes or if something uh, hard was going to happen to my daughters for a few minutes or a few seconds. But here, God is promising Abraham this incredible promise that from him would come a nation, would come a people, and from that people would come the Savior. And like more, God has promised more than Abraham can even wrap his mind around at the time. And as part of that promise, he says, those people, your people, they're going to end up enslaved and they're going to be afflicted for a span of 400 years. And Abraham doesn't even seem to balk at it. And God goes on. He says, but I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. That God is going to work that season of suffering together for their good. As for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. That's a nice, kind Bible way of saying you're going to die. You shall be buried in a good old age. You're not going to see this take place because they shall come up back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I was, thinking, read this. I was reading this, this this week in my prayer time. I was thinking like, I don't know. 
that if God made me an incredible promise, and then right on the heels of that incredible promise, he said, it's going to take longer than you'll be alive to come to fruition. And then even after you die, that promise is going to go through some hard times, but it's okay because on the other side of the suffering is going to come the Savior. Like, I don't know that I would have handled it like Abraham, who trusted God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But that is because I think Abraham knew God. And my hope and my prayer for us today as we make our way through this text and as we make our way through this season and through this study and we see who God is and what it is that sets him apart is we would grow in our affection for God, that we would know God more so that when the time comes to trust God, we would be ready to put our trust in him. God brings beauty from everything in its time. That's the promise. Sometimes that is more than a lifetime, which from our instant gratification perspective doesn't seem good, but God is working everything together for an eternal good. And so if you find yourself in a season of wondering, like wondering when is God going to take the pain away? Or when is God going to bring that person into my life? Or when is God going to give us kids? Or when is God ever going to make it possible for me to retire? When is God ever going to draw my kids back to him? When are we going to have a restored relationship in our family? When is God going to? When is God going to? I'm looking forward to the day. The promise isn't that it's going to happen in your lifetime, but that God is using even the season of wondering and waiting and longing for his good and for his glory and for the good of the people that we have the privilege to serve. And he says from the very beginning, we cannot grasp what God is doing on his eternal timeline. Back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into the heart of man. He's put something inside of us that makes us long for eternity, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. All throughout scripture, we see the, the, the forefathers of our faith, Abraham and Moses and Job and even Job's friends, looking at what God is doing and saying, we cannot make sense of this. But the truth is, there's something inside of us that longs for what God is doing in eternity. There's something inside of all of us that longs to see everything set right, everything set in place because we are tired of living in a broken down world suffering from the fallout and affliction of sin we look forward to it we long for it we want to see the plan complete and enjoy the satisfaction of everything being set right it's like when we live in orlando and we drive around town and there is construction on every single road we drive on, right? It doesn't matter if it's a back road or a toll road or an interstate road. There's construction everywhere you look. And it seems like it's never going to be complete. Have you noticed that? Like, have you noticed how, like, if they finish one project, before they wrap it up, they've started on the next project? I, I, I look at this, and I'm not a traffic engineer. Those guys have got to be way smarter than I am. But, like, they take a two-lane road and turn it into a four-lane road to make room for more cars. And before they're done, we've outgrown that road. It's like, why do you go from, like, a two-lane road to a 12-lane road? Right? We're the third fastest growing city in the country. Can you not see a few minutes into the future? And it's just like, it's never going to be done. We'll never be able to drive around our city without running through a pothole or dodging an orange cone or something like that or sitting in traffic. We long for the day where things are set right, where there's smooth sailing and everything is perfect. And the truth is we'll never experience such 
pure joy this side of heaven. But we look forward to it with eager anticipation because we know the eternal God is working all things together for an eternal good. And here's what I've learned, that the longer I live, the, long, the more I long for eternity. Now, for some of you that are older than me, you think, man, how long have you been alive? How, how could you much possibly long for eternity? But the truth is, it's true. Like, the longer I live, the more I long for eternity. I long for the day that everything will be set right. Like, one of the, the, the joys I tell my wife all the time of serving a church is that we get to go to heaven with our favorite people. Like, we look around, like, these are the people that are going with us, and I'm looking forward to spending eternity with you, with God. When there's no more suffering, no more sorrow, because it's not just, like, difficult days that I experience. It's like, man, I see your sorrow and your trouble, and there's parts of uh, this world that I cannot explain other than the fallout of sin and suffering. And so I long for eternity. I don't wish this life away, but I look forward to what God is going to accomplish. But here's a conviction I've developed over the course of the last couple of years. And I don't even know if this is a holy, con- holy conviction or a holy way to handle this conviction, but like I don't pray for God to come just yet. I was growing up in elementary school and uh, I was in church and one of the guys who was a wonderful guy, great, loves the Lord, he prayed, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And I'm beginning to understand the sentiment. He had, he had gone through a lot of life, and he wanted to see Jesus come and come quickly. He was looking forward to, a he- to heaven and time with God. But I have this conviction that if Jesus came today, there are many people that I know and love that I'm not confident would spend eternity with him, and I don't want to spend eternity without them. And so I think about with great anticipation for what God is going to do on an eternal scale, in eternity with him. But The more I understand the eternal nature of God, the more I understand the urgency of today. That I am not eternal. That you are not eternal. We had a start date. And we will spend eternity with him, or we will spend eternity apart from him. And what we do today, and how we make disciples today, makes a difference for eternity. And with that in mind, I'm grateful that God is working things out according to his timeline and not mine. The Apostle Peter would write a letter to the church, and in his second letter to the church, he would say this. He would say, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. He's writing to the church, to believers like you and I, people who have put their faith in Jesus, who are longing. They were suffering significantly under Roman rule at this time in Peter's writing. He says, do not overlook this fact one day, beloved, that the Lord, uh, with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, that God sees all of time because God exists outside of time. And then he would say this, he would say, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, his promise to come back for his church. He's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but instead he is patient toward you. I've circled this more times over in my Bible. He is patient towards you because he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, it will come like a thief, The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so Peter kind of lays out for us that God is not like this elderly great-great-grandfather sitting up there in heaven and we're wondering if ever he's going to get up and go about his business that he's promised. But he is a loving heavenly father who can see every moment from the beginning to the end and everything in between. And his slowness should not be misinterpreted from what it really is. It is his patience for his people to make their way back to him. But make no mistake, he says, in the same breath, he says, but the day of the Lord will come. 
And it's going to come like a thief in the night. We don't know if it's going to be today or tomorrow or a thousand years from tomorrow. But we know he's coming. And the question is, do we know God? And I've never been like a huge call to action, hellfire and brimstone preacher. But the truth is like, sometimes we need the reminder straight from the scriptures that Jesus is coming and everything we see is gonna be consumed and everything is gonna be made new. And for those who know God, there will be eternal good, eternal joy, eternal satisfaction that in the new heaven and the new earth that we cannot wrap our mind around. It's something worth looking forward to with anxious anticipation. But for those who choose to not know God in this earth, they will not know God for eternity. And as I look around, as I think about how much I look forward to creation, I've just got this constant conviction. There are people I know and there are people I love who I am not confident that they will be in eternity with God. And I do not want eternity without them. So if we're standing in all of God and his eternal nature, the question is, well, how do we trust God? What do we do with it? How does he change the way we live today? To answer that question, I want to flip over to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 16, and hear what the Apostle Paul writes to the church when he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Because what? The days are evil. To throw Kevin a bone, the old King James says it this way, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. I actually love the way the King James translates that scripture, that time has been distorted by Satan and the fallout of sin, but God makes it possible through Jesus to redeem the time he has given us for his glory. Jen Wilkin in her book, None Like Him, writes this, we are commanded to be time redeemers, those who reclaim our time from useless pursuits and employ it to the glory of God. How do we redeem our time? We do it uh, by not clinging to the past with sinful nostalgia, looking back thinking, man, if things would just go back to the way they were, and we don't look back on the past with regret because God has set us free from our shame and our sin. At the same time, we redeem our time by not looking forward to the future with sinful anticipation, longing for something more, for something different instead of being content with what God has given us. Or looking forward to the future with anxiety, with fearful dread of what might be to come. We redeem the time when we live fully in the present because as we make the most of the days that God has given us, we can affect the way others know God for eternity. And what better way to spend our time than to make sure that when we run out of time here, everyone we know is spending all their time with God. I'm studying these attributes of God and I'm just, I really am just standing in all of him. I'm reading textbooks from college, things I've thumbed through before, highlights and underlines and kind of wrap my mind around who is this God. And I'm spending a significant amount of time making my way through scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end and recognizing that God is more mysterious than I'd ever wrap my mind around, that he is eternal. And the truth is I still struggle with like these moments with anxiousness. Like, but what about today, God? Here's the truth, the more we know God, the more we can trust him today. And the more we know that God can see all of creation and all of time from the beginning to the end and for eternity, we know that he is in control, that he's working all things together for the good of those who love him, that he makes everything, everything, the cancer diagnosis, the broken relationship, the starving person, beautiful in its time. 
because God is not limited to our lifetime. He is working in us and through us for his glory, for our good, for all of time. And what better way to spend our time than to use our time to make sure that when we run out of time here, that everyone we know and love will spend all their time with God. Father, we are so thankful that you make yourself known to us. I pray that we would never take for granted that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the God of creation who existed before any of creation came into existence, makes himself known to his people. And Father, you have set your people apart from the world and you have saved us through Jesus and you have sanctified us through the power of your spirit. You have made it possible for us to put our trust and our faith in you. Father, I pray that as your people gather together in the authority of your word, that your Holy Spirit would go to work in us. Father, make yourself known to us as we make much of you. Father, increase our affection for you, that we would stand in awe of God, stand in awe of you in such a way that it would change the way we live today. And Father, as we think about the God who created and controls all of time, help us make the most of our time so that those around us would spend all of their time with you. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus who makes all of this possible. It is in his holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.